The reading for today is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and it is shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Laura. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you guys this morning. Quick other announcement. I know it's early in the game, but um, I, I want to make sure everybody gets this on their calendar um, because it's really important. So here, look up here. You got to look up here now, okay? We are going to have a Christmas Eve service choir, okay? And, I, and, and so I want you to plan on being a part of the choir. We want you in the choir, okay? So here are some things that you need to think about for that. Number one, uh, they're allowing me to be in the choir. So those of you who are sitting there thinking, I can't sing, okay, I'm in the choir. So you can be in the choir too. The bar is really, really low. They'll let anybody in, okay? So that's the first thing. So we want you to be there. Second of all, uh, Christmas Eve this year is on Monday night, and I know for a fact that nobody has anything to do on Monday nights during the week, and so you can be here for Christmas Eve services. And number three, it's only two services, and they're really close together, so it's not that big of a deal. They're at 3.30 and 5 this year, so by 6 o'clock you'll be out of here, you'll be on your way to do whatever it is you do on Christmas Eve. So please, we'd love to have a big choir, and here's why. People always tell us how blessed they are when we have a nice choir on Christmas Eve, and so... Uh, make it nice and join in, okay? All right. So <clears throat> that's the um, only unawkward thing that we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, it seems as though, based on uh, what we've been looking at. So we're going through Ephesians. We've been going through it for the last 38, 39 weeks. We're in our last four weeks. This is the second of the last four weeks. This is the section where Paul says, finally, finally, in other words, Having said all of this, you need to remember this. And what we need to remember is that we are in a spiritual war. And that we need to put on the armor of God. And we need to stand firm. And we need to be aware of this. And we can't be distracted. And we also can't be sold this bill of goods that says that this doesn't exactly, actually exist. Because it does. He's very serious about this. I'm very serious about this. It's in the Bible. It's in the Word of God. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. We need to take this uh, seriously um, as a reality. And so it's been split up really into three sections. We're going to have um, one last message on this. It's kind of a review of Ephesians. But last week, Vermon got us started. He did uh, 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 verses 10 through 12 and did a magnificent job. A couple things I'm going to keep coming back to that Vermon talked about that just stuck with me all week and are even with me uh, today that was so important. Uh, this week, we're, we're looking at the actual armor, so 13 through uh, 18a, and then we kind of wrap it up with some, some uh, reminders again uh, next week. 
And so, in reality, last week's sermon and this week's sermon are one big, long message of about an hour and a half, and so we need to treat it that way. And so I want to go back and just do a little review. Not that Vermont didn't do a good job, I thought he was absolutely fantastic, but because not everybody's here every Sunday, and you maybe didn't hear what he had to say, I just want to make sure that we're grounded in what he had to say last week before we actually unpack uh, the armor of God. And, and really, the best place to do that would be in verse 12. Look again at verse 12. Paul writes, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, again, look up here. This is even more important than the Christmas Eve choir. What is it that we do not wrestle against? Flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is huge, and I'm going to spend some time on this. But rather, we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities. Oh, so the government. Nope. It's against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. That's what we're wrestling against. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood. We are wrestling against the cosmic forces, the cosmic powers of evil that reside over this present darkness. It's important to know what we're fighting against. It's huge. And some of you don't even know or think that you're in a fight. You've already lost. Vermont said that last week. I can't stress that enough. You've already lost. Satan isn't going to bother you. But it doesn't matter because he knows you're dead. Because you're not aware of the fact that this is going on. We get this so wrong. And I'm not talking about people who aren't in the church, people who don't believe in Jesus, people who are in... I'm not talking... Yeah, they've got it wrong too. I'm talking about people in the church who claim Christ as their Savior. So many of us get this wrong or misunderstand it. Here you go. Here you go. Your enemy, my enemy, our enemy, it's not the ACLU. It's not the Republican Party. It's not the Democratic Party. It's not Donald Trump. It's not Hillary Clinton. It's not Hollywood, and it's not the NRA. It's none of those things. And I know, I, I know, I, I know this from experience, and I know this from conversations. Right now, some of you are all, your blood is rising right now. Of course they're the enemy, whatever it is. The ACLU or the NRA, of course they're the enemy. No, they're not. Satan has you deceived, and you're fighting the wrong battle. You're playing the wrong game. He's got you right where he wants you. You don't understand the game that's being played. They are not our enemies. Our enemy is Satan. And he is clever. And he's more clever than you and me. He's smart. He's smarter than you and me. Oh, there's no... Yes, he is. He's way more deceptive. He's the father of lies, Jesus says. Even Jesus warns us about him. He's clever. He's deceptive. He has schemes that you and I could never fathom in our lives. He, he is really smart. He's got your algorithm figured out long before you could even say algorithm. He's got it figured out. Our enemy is sin. And that sin gets manufactured and manifested through us, but it is contrived by Satan, and it attacks and comes directly through 
the human heart. But my heart is so good and pure. No, it's not. Satan knows how to attack us. Satan knows how to go after us. And he goes after our heart. Our heart is is deceptive and wicked above all things, Jeremiah tells us. Nobody can understand it. In, in, In Numbers 15... God tells us that we need to, here you go, this is biblical language, y'all. God tells us we need to quit whoring after the desires of our heart. Whoring after the desires of our hearts. We are so deceived by our hearts, and that's exactly where Satan goes to get us on his plan in his scheme. And that's sin, and sin permeates everything. And, and I'm telling you, the lack of understanding in this area is a real challenge. As a pastor, I'm stunned at how I virtually never have conversations about how wicked and evil Satan and sin are. I don't have those conversations. Instead, I'm constantly engaged in conversations about the wickedness of corporations, of organizations, of political parties, of politicians, of communities, and government policies. And yes, Satan and sin have infected all of those things, and Satan and sin has infected uh, you and me as well. His wretchedness is manifested through flesh and blood and through these systems, which is partly why it's so confusing to us and hard for us to understand this. But our true enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is Satan and his forces, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Our economy, our political situation the injustices that permeate this world, the crudeness, the rudeness, and the anger, these are spiritual problems. And spiritual problems require, first and foremost, spiritual answers. We keep trying to throw worldly answers at them and then wonder why that doesn't work. We can change policy all we want, but policy does not change our hearts. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that policy and arguments just don't change our hearts? And yet we rush to be the person in charge of policy. We rush to elect the people who are in charge of policy as if that's going to be our salvation. It's fascinating to me. If we rush to worldly answers for these problems without the gospel, we become part of the problem, y'all. We're part of the problem when we do this without the gospel. We're just another voice in the din of voices. We're just another person in our own echo chamber when we do that. And by the way, Christians should be rushing to help with these problems. We should be. We give great lip service to most of this stuff. We're not rushing hard enough to do this. But when we rush to do it, primarily the problem, when we do rush to do it, is we're doing it without the two most important things, and that's gospel and humility. Even when we do it, we think this is going to be me and it's going to be, I'm going to do it and I'm going to be a hero and, and, and people on social media are going to affirm me and it's going to be really fun. We don't have the humility. It takes great humility and self-awareness to engage in the real, devastating, comprehensive and ever-present spiritual battle that we are all in. Last three or four years, I've noticed that one of the most popular biblical verses is Micah 6, 8, that we're going um, to do justice and we're going to act 
mercifully, and we're going to walk humbly with our Lord. And, and what I've discovered in application, this is my experience, what I've discovered in application and in conversations is that it's really not Micah 6.8 that we're enamored with. We're enamored with Micah 6.8a. It's all about the justice. Oh, yeah, we have to act mercifully to, oh, yeah, well, I'll do that if the person, if, if, if it's the right person, if the person deserves it. And then when it comes to humility, we don't even consider that. That's a problem. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because it was just? Because he was arrogant? Because he was filled with pride? He went to the cross out of humility. He's God's son and he went to the cross. He did what you and I would not do, could not do, would walk away from, and he did it with humility. Humility for If we're going to do justice and we're going to act, uh, behave mercifully, we have to start with humility. It's not an add-on. It's not an afterthought. It's not something that, that comes if we feel like it. Jesus was all about humility, gentleness. He wants justice, that's for sure. He wants justice. But if it's gone about the wrong way, he knows it won't be effective and it won't make a difference in the end. We need to be careful of that. Here you go. Think of it this way. Um, how many of you are actually playing the wrong game? Okay. Can you win a game that you're not even playing correctly and you have the wrong equipment for? Can you? Has anybody ever won a tennis match using golf clubs? Has that ever happened? No, right? Okay, see, this is the problem that the church and so many Christians have, is we're trying to play tennis with golf clubs. When we bring worldly solutions and worldly causes to bear, and we don't bring Jesus and we don't bring humility, we're, we're bringing a hockey stick to a football game. It doesn't work. And, and I'll tell you, I, I, some, of us, some of us desperately want this to be a flesh and blood issue because that's easier for us and we're more comfortable with that. We don't even like the thought that this is a spiritual battle. We can identify somebody and blame shift and that's so much easier when it's flesh and blood. We don't like the fact that even to the oppressor we have to show mercy and humility. That's really hard. That's why it's not about us, and that's why it's not the armor of you or the armor of the world. It's the armor of God, right? We're playing, some of us are playing the wrong game. And some of us actually, I think, I, just a conversation, I mean, there's some enjoyment that you get out of hating the Democrats or hating the Republicans or hating the ACLU or hating the NRA because we're bringing a hockey stick to a football game. Now, in case you hadn't noticed, I really get enjoyment out of judging and criticizing people who hate Democrats and Republicans, so, just so we know. Now, that launches us into this Armor of God discussion, which starts again with a reiteration of 10 through 12. Paul writes, therefore, take up the whole uh, armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Withstand, stand, stand, withstand. This seems to be an important topic, and Vermont hit it very hard in a good way, last week as well. Stand, withstand. So many of us want to attack. And the language here is one of, of standing and, and withstanding. And we do that by taking up the armor of God. 
The, the verb there means that you're continuously taking it up. You're continuously putting on the armor of God. It's not this idea that we have where, okay, here comes the spiritual attack. I'm going to put on the armor of God. The spiritual attack is over. I'm going to take off the armor of God. The problem with that is that the, the spiritual attacks are coming all the time and when you least expect them. You have to put on and keep putting on constantly the armor of God, always putting it on, never taking it off. There isn't an off button Last week when Vermont spoke at, at the 1045 service, I got to serve in children's ministry with the three and four-year-olds. And let me tell you something, I had a blast. Those of you parents that have three and four-year-olds in the second service, you're, you're awesome. I don't know about the rest of you parents, but you three and four-year-old parents, you're really awesome. I mean, it was an absolute blast. But I will tell you this about three and four-year-olds, they don't have an off button. And you need to, th there is no downtime in there. It, that's the way this spiritual warfare is. Paul tells us this is a never-ending, relentless battle, and we must never even lower our guard. Imagine, those of you who remember him the way I do, imagine being in the ring with Muhammad Ali at his prime. You lower that guard for a split second, and he's going to sting you like a bee. Game over. That's what it's like. We've got to be ready all the time. And he says, we need to be ready so that we can withstand in the evil day. Paul continues to acknowledge that all the days that we're in, since the ascension of Jesus until he comes again, they are all filled with wickedness and deception and traps and sin. And we need the armor of God in order to be able to withstand. And that word withstand literally means to take a contrary position. It means to take a contrary position. And here you go. This, this goes to the humility part, okay? It's not enough to just take a contrary position. We have to do it in a humble way. There are so many of us who are proud of our contrarianism. That doesn't work. So many of us who are, we're so cool because we're the subversives. And, and really it's about the coolness. And the pride that you get from being a, a subversive and a contrarian. No, 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 no. This gospel stuff is hard stuff. And, and, and when we start to dress the gospel up so that it's cool, so that you can put it on, on Facebook and be admired by all, all people, when you start to dress up the gospel, you're doing a disservice to the gospel. It's not the real gospel anymore. The gospel is real and it's true and it's beautiful, but it's really simple. Everybody's sinners. We're all susceptible to these spiritual attacks and temptation, and we need Jesus. He went to the cross for us. He died for us. He rose from the grave. He conquered all of this stuff, Satan, sin, and death. That's the gospel. It doesn't need to be dressed up as cool. It doesn't need to be dressed up as contrarian. It just is what it is. I, I saw a tweet a couple weeks ago. I love this. Uh, he, he said, if your Bible is preaching the gospel and working its way through... I'm sorry, if your Bible... If your church is preaching the gospel and working its way through the Bible every Sunday, you already have a contemporary service. You don't need to worry about that. Doesn't matter what kind of music you have. Doesn't matter what kind of coffee you have. Doesn't matter whether or not you have good egress or, uh, or ingress with your parking lot. You have a contemporary service when you are proclaiming the gospel and teaching the word of God. And we don't need to dress that up. Now, we can have fun while we're doing it. We need to have fun. God had fun. But, but we need to be careful about what we're doing to the gospel so that it makes us feel better about us. And, and also notice it's not an attack. It's not an attack. We're also geared up to attack. 
to take charge, to go and do something, but rather we are to withstand the never-ending barrage of his schemes. And, and who do we stand in? Here you go. Who do we stand in? It's in Jesus because Jesus is above everything. It's above anything that you and I could ever come up with. It's above any church program. It's above any new scheme that we have to make the church attractive, whatever it is. Jesus is above Satan. He's already won. He's also showed us how to do it in Luke chapter 4. We need to recognize that. God does not leave his people defenseless. As Ramon said last week, also, we need to recognize the reality of this. In case you hadn't gotten the feeling just yet in this message, I believe this is real, and it is real. I've experienced it myself in dark ways, ways that cannot be explained, and that doesn't, that doesn't make it real. I'm just telling you I've experienced it. The reason I know it's real is because it's right here. I'm fascinated. Um, This has been my experience as a pastor for 20 years. Every time we talk about spiritual warfare, there is an uptick of emails in my inbox from people who essentially say this, I had no idea your church believed in this. And then they leave the church. Can't handle it. Satan has already defeated them. Satan has already defeated them. By the way, Before you join a church, read their statement of faith. You might learn something (laughs) because it's right there in there. You and I need to know where and how and in whom to stand. That's why Paul writes this. And the armor, it's obviously the Romans. it's 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 a comparison to the Roman soldier, the ancient first century Roman soldier. And many of us have heard this for years. And, and we know uh, every weapon, every part of the armor is defensive except one, and we'll get to that. But Paul is saying that, in a sense, we are soldiers in this gospel adventure because there's a war. He uses this language in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. No soldier in active duty can allow themselves to be distracted with the worldly things. So this is him again saying, put on the armor of God and keep putting it on all the time because you can't be distracted by these worldly things or you're going to lose. You're going to let your guard down because we are in a war and it's a deadly war that means life to those who are saved by Jesus but death otherwise. Paul compares this to the soldiers of his day. So Paul again was, uh, was adept at using current cultural reference just like we try to be uh, today. And, and he describes the equipment of the gospel soldier. And yes, we're going to go through it. Some of you have been like, this is like the 19th time in my life I've been through this. Do we have to go through it again? Yes, it'll be a wonderful review for you. But really, there are a number of people in here, I guarantee you, have never heard this, didn't know this was in the Bible, never read Ephesians before, and they need to hear this. They need to hear this. What Paul, what the Holy Spirit has to say about this. So here you go. There's the belt of truth. The way Paul describes the belt of truth here is that our truth in Christ, in the gospel, is not a weapon to be used to challenge or to attack or to beat up others. But rather it is for our comfort, our security, our guidance, our wisdom, and our hope as believers. That's what it's for. The Roman soldier belt was a piece of equipment that tended to hold everything else in place. It was the thing you kind of put on last to kind of 
make sure everything was there and girded up and you felt secure and, and it was tight. Believers are constantly under the siege of falsehoods, which can rock our confidence and faith, so we need that belt of truth. And then there's the breastplate of righteousness. You think about a modern soldier, and there's the Kevlar, the bulletproof vest. That's, that, that vest, that Kevlar, that protection is there when everything else fails. It's your last line of defense against a bullet. It's for, when everything else fails, your offensive weapons, your whatever you're using to shield yourself, your, your strategy, your tactics, your agility, it's there. Same was true for the Roman soldier. They had, a, they had a, a breastplate that protected them when their shield, their agility, and their other weapons failed to do the job. And so you and I, as, as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ, in spite of our most vigilant efforts, falsehoods often go undetected and they make their way into the church and into our communities and into our lives. So we need this breastplate. The number of New Testament letters that talk about this, about this stuff infiltrating the church. Again, we just went through the, postcard, the New Testament postcards, and, and three of the four dealt with this issue. And, and, and it dealt with it as it was happening in the church, not, not from outside the church, but in the church. It's making its way into the church. The breastplate of righteousness is our uncompromising defense against these falsehoods. And the uncompromising is not our power, it is in Jesus' power. Paul says, be strong in his mighty power. Our righteousness is ultimately not in us, but in Christ. The righteousness that we have in Christ is our uh, is our ultimate unfailing defense when Satan breaks us down, and he's going to break us down, and he's just going to keep coming at us. But the beauty of it, and this is the beauty of the gospel, is that when we mess up, we're still not messed up. That's the beauty of the gospel. Because we're going to mess up, but in Christ, in his righteousness, in his salvation, we're not messed up. And then says that these shoes, which give us the readiness of the gospel of peace. The Roman military had this sort of half boot, half sandal thing that gave them three things that were very important for a Roman soldier. Gave them traction, it gave them protection, and it gave them flexibility. Kind of three things that you would like if you're a, a first century soldier. I thought I'd mention the modern soldier again, and I know modern combat boots, right? Maybe. I took a little different tack here because Paul says readiness and peace, readiness and peace. So I think this might actually be better understood as training and preparation, training and preparation. Every soldier, every soldier goes through boot camp. They go through training and education and preparation to prepare them, to get them ready for this life that he or she will live. Christians need this as well. Our, our boot camp, our training, our education, our preparation is corporate worship. We mention these three things every week. It's corporate worship. It's Bible study and, and community and, and um, small groups. And it's serving others. That's how we are continually being trained and prepared. Those are, those are our spiritual exercises that build our spiritual muscles. It's spiritual aerobics, those Three things. And that's what prepares us to be peacemakers and people of peace. 
And the Christian who does not believe that they need boot camp will never be prepared and never be able to face the trouble that Jesus says we're going to have in this world. He says that in John uh, 16, He says, in this world, you will have trouble. And that trouble is constant and never-ending. And but he doesn't say, in this world, you will have trouble sometimes, and it'll be mostly at convenient times when you're ready for it. That's not what he says. He says, in this world, you will have trouble all the time. And by the way, what does he say? <laughs> but take heart, because I've overcome the world. So ultimately, this armor is all about Jesus. But the trouble is always going to come. And people who don't think they need this boot camp are going to be in trouble. And they won't be agents of peace in this world. The Christian who lives without these essentials of the gospel, corporate life, community, and service, slowly becomes arrogant and eventually will try to live this life on their own. And that doesn't work. Then there's the shield of faith which extinguishes the flaming arrows. Flaming arrows were one of the most feared offensive weapons in, in first century warfare. And the Roman soldier's was, shield was this um, plank of wood that was three feet by two feet, and then it had a, 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 um, a nice uh, layer of leather on the outside that they would soak in water before battle so that when the flaming arrows came, they would stick in the shield and, and immediately be extinguished. If, if your shield catches fire, that could be a problem for you. And then you're shieldless because you have to throw it down, and there you're in real trouble. So you see the imagery here that, that Paul is, is coming up with. And the flaming arrows, of course, Satan fires these arrows at us, and they are specifically designed to inflame our temptation, our thought life, our desires, our lust, and our pride. This was the biggest thing that hit me last week from Vermont's message, the time he spent trying to get us to understand just how intensely personal these attacks are on us. Satan knows us. He knows our history. He has our algorithm. Here you go. Have you noticed that Amazon seems to be a step ahead of you with everything that you need and want in your life now? You're getting all these pop-ups and all these messages that you never asked for, but they know exactly what you need, and it's one click away. Now, I'm not comparing Satan and Amazon. But you see that? Satan's been doing this since the dawn of time. He's got you and me figured out. He knows what to attack me with and what's just a waste of time. He knows exactly what to come at you at and what's a waste of time. It's highly personalized. He's not out there casting a wide net and hoping something sticks. He's coming right at you. He's coming right at me. We need to be aware of that and, and ready. Those arrows are personalized. And, and all of us as human beings, we're, we're prone to this tempting, lustful, pride-inspired thoughts and behaviors, and, and many of them are self-inflicted. And this is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. This is why, not just on Sundays, but we need to hear and understand every single day. We're sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God. But through his grace and his love, he has redeemed us, and he is, he is sanctifying us, and he sees us right now as righteous and holy and as saved through the finished work of Christ on the cross and through his resurrection. That is good news, and we need to preach that to ourselves every day, because Satan will even use it. it, it come on, do it. Do it. Nobody will know. Do it. You can erase your history. Nobody's going to know. Do it. Do it. It'll be so much fun. It'll be so much fun. Mm, 
didn't you do it? And then what does he do? You're a loser. You suck. You fell into the trap. <laughs> You're not good enough for God. He's got it coming and going with us. That's just part of his deal. That's just part of his deal. That's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And one other thing we need to understand about these Roman shields, the Roman army used their shields in community. They knew that when the arrows started coming, they had a formation that they practiced so that they could cover everybody with their shields. They knew how to fit together perfectly. See, that's the church. That's the church. You can't do this without community. And you can't be somebody who's trying to fragment the community because that's destructive. We need the body. We need the, the community. And, and so we can't be fragmented. The, the idea of, I, I can be a Christian and not be a part of a faith community. Show me the verse. You can't do it. And, and by the way, you're in big trouble. Satan's favorite Christian to go after is the isolated Christian, especially the one that self-isolates. It's his favorite Christian to go after. You've seen those, those shows where there are these, there's a group of animals, a herd or a flock or whatever you want, a gaggle, whatever you want to call them, okay? They're going along, and there's that one that starts to fall behind. So what does the lion do? Does the lion go into the middle and try to grab one in the middle? No. The lion goes right after that scraggler, the one that's isolated. And that's exactly what Satan does. The minute you begin to isolate yourself from the faith community, you have lost. And he's yours. And you are his. That's how important it is. I don't know. I'm a pastor. I have a dog in this, in this race. I get that. Okay, try it on your own. Just because I have a dog in this race doesn't make it any less true. Doesn't make it any less true. And the church needs to be this protection as well. Then there's the helmet of salvation. Of course, Roman soldiers had helmets, many of which covered their cheeks. Do you remember the Gladiator movie when Russell Crowe put on that helmet the first time? Covered his cheeks too. I thought it was kind of ugly and goofy looking, but hey, he could fight. Now, for the Christian, think about this. The helmet protects our heads. Who is the head of the church? Who is the head of the body? Who is the head of our community? Who is the head of us? It's Jesus. Our salvation is in Jesus and Jesus alone. He is also our sustainer by the filling of his Holy Spirit. Jesus is our helmet. It all comes back to Jesus. And then there's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the only overtly offensive weapon. And I think even this we misunderstand. Roman soldiers had swords and they knew how to use them. But here, Paul specifically says that the sword of the disciple of Jesus is the word of God. Now, many contemporary soldiers have a Bible, a little Bible with them, or, or maybe they carry scripture uh, in their hearts and in their minds and on, the, on their tongues. They've memorized verses and passages, which is important. And this, of course, would have been especially true in Paul's day. Every soldier had their most important texts memorized because it was an oral culture. N nobody walked around with a book in the first century. Their book was memorized in their heads. When I was seven years old, I had 150 phone numbers memorized. My contact list was up here. Don't need that anymore. I have a phone that records all of that. But in the first century, they had their, they had their texts in their minds. And that's true. But why God's word? Why is it so important that this is going to be our sword? 
because it, it helps us to so easily recognize falsehood. That's why. If you and I know God and his word well enough, we'll know any false narrative that comes our way about God. We'll be able to pick it out. I, again, I hear so many people say, why don't we have a class on this heresy or on that heresy or on that false teaching or on that false teaching? And my answer is always the same. We don't need a class on the false teachings. We need a class on God's word because if you know God's word, you're going to know any false teaching that comes your way. You're not going to have to worry about it. And by the way, by the time we've mastered some false teaching, it's going to be some other false teaching that's going to come our way. And we should have spent that time focusing on God's word. Paul, uh, I'm sorry, John calls it testing the spirits in, in 1 John. You have, you have your, the truth at your behest, and so you recognize falsehoods just like that. But notice that's not an offensive weapon. We're not taking this sword of God's word out to beat people up. It's to help us stand and to withstand. It's to know his word so well that nothing gets by us. It's... It, 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 it also then helps us to speak into every life situation with mercy and humility. So we're not going around beating people up, but we're, we're now compassionately and gracefully speaking into life situations. You can address anything with this sword, but it's a weapon that doesn't kill. It is a weapon that brings life. I can't tell you how many times I have brought the life of God's word to a situation and I have killed it with my approach, trying to use it too offensively. It's not that we shouldn't speak up, but we need to speak up with humility and grace and mercy. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, this, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart, and that brings life. Then prayer. Now, this is not a specific part of the equipment, but rather the thing that, that we all need to undergird and hold all of the equipment together. It, it, prayer is the banner over the armor, and it's the banner under the armor, and it's the banner that protects our sides. The truth, the righteousness, the readiness, the peace, the faith, it's just not going to work without the oil and glue of prayer. Prayer oils things, but it also makes things sticky. And what does it mean, by the way, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? I believe that this is a reminder primarily that the power is not in the prayer itself, but in the one we pray to. We get this wrong too. Praying in the Spirit means that the ritual or religion isn't what has power, but the one that we're praying to. It's God. And consider, in prayer... When we are attacked, which is often and unrelenting, what we need from the Spirit is for Him to reveal two things for, for us. We need the Spirit to reveal the lie that we're believing and the false God that we are worshiping. Because that's where we get into trouble. We start worshiping false gods and we believe lies. Vermont talked about that last week as well. These lies are so subtle because there's some element of truth in them, and we have to be careful. And that's why we need, to, we need the Spirit's power and illumination to be able to, to do this well. Have you ever bobbed for apples, anybody? Or you've seen somebody bob for apples? Okay. I have a thing about water, so I never did it, but I watched other people do it. And I like apples. 
if they're the right apple. They have to be a Honeycrisp apple, but anyway. But you bob for apples, okay? And the idea is you go into the water and hopefully you can get your mouth uh, to bite into an apple and pull up the sweet, crispy, juicy, Honeycrisp apple, and, that, and that's your reward, okay? How would it be if you walk up to the barrel, you see the water in the apples, and you stick your face in there, and you bite, and, and, and all you get is a mouthful of sand, and you pull out a mouthful of sand. This is what Satan and the world and his demons are doing to us, showing us this barrel of water and beautiful apples. We go down, we get a mouthful of sand, and we pull it out. See, we're never told that part. We're told about the pleasure and the upside, but we're never told about the pain. We're never told about the sand. And then we wonder what went wrong. Praying in the Spirit helps us to illuminate these lies so that we don't bob for apples and come up with sand, so that we don't worship false gods. When the Spirit of God applies the Word of God to the hearts and minds of God's people, that's when we find His wisdom, His will, and His joy. And remember again, we need to remember again, Paul, this whole idea of putting off and putting on and turning from this and turning toward that, it's not so much what we're turning from, although that's not good, but what we're turning to is the important thing. What we're turning to. Think about it this way. If you've ever had a mouse in your house, okay, you got a mouse, yikes, okay, I know, you call the exterminator, but in the meantime, you get a broom and you shoo that vermin out of your house, okay? Well, great, mouse is gone, problem taken care of. No, see, here's what that mouse does. That mouse goes and gets six or seven of his friends, and they all come back. They can take a little broom every now and then. Now you got seven or eight mice, and they start multiplying. Now you got 50 mice, okay? You didn't, you didn't turn to something. You just shooed something away. The minute you saw that first mouse, you needed to turn to something. What did you need? A cat. You needed a cat. You get a cat, no more mice. That's the end of this. You turn to the cat. I never, ever, ever thought I would say this, but praying in the spirit is our cat redemption. And I'm a dog person, so like this is really hard for me to say, all right? It's what we're turning to. Now, last thing. One of the forgotten things about this imagery is that it's also very likely an allusion to this very detailed description that we get in the book of Exodus, the Old Testament, the Torah, the law of Moses, about what the priests are supposed to wear. If you've ever read Exodus 28, it's fascinating. I love the book of Exodus, even, even the, t stuff, t the stuff about building the tabernacle and all the detail. But 28 is really interesting. It describes very clearly what the priest the one officiating services is supposed to be wearing. There's an allusion here to that as well. Think about the belt. The priest had a sash that was their belt, but they, wore, they didn't wear it down here. They wore it around their chest, over their heart, because it was supposed to symbolize the atonement of our sins of the heart. That's what it was supposed to symbolize. And, and the breastplate... Uh, most texts that I read call it a breastplate. Some people call it a breastpiece, but it's a breastplate. It's not made of Kevlar. It's made of fine linen, but they had a breastplate. And the breastplate was worn under everything else. You'd then put on, the priest would then put on the robe over the breastplate. 
And, and then, and by the way, the breastplate um, was, was made of this um, beautiful twisted linen that was purple and blue and crimson. But then they would put on the shield, and the shield was their aphod. The, the, the shield was this beautiful, elaborately adorned vest that the priest wore over the breastplate during his services. And this was probably the most important piece of the priest's garments. The, the aphod was decorated to symbolize the remembering of God's provisions and miracles in the life of the Israelites and to indicate his righteousness in all of his judgments. And then the sword, for them it was the Torah. It was the law of Moses. That was their sword. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the helmet, the priests wore a turban that had a, a gold plate sewed into the front of their turman, turban. And the turban symbolized humility and called for everyone to atone of pride and arrogance. And then prayer. And let me just say this, they kill in prayer. They, these priests, they kill and they, they, they pray. They pray a lot. But they also struggle with the idea that prayer is doing something and it's not God. They struggle with that. They often believe that the power was in the prayer and the ritual of prayer, but not necessarily in God. They believed in the religion, but not in God. And that's a problem. And, and of course, we do that too. We do that too. We think prayer is some sort of a magic formula that's going to get us what we want. We don't understand the power behind the prayer, who it is we're praying to. The most, one of the most common self-complaints about our lives of faith is that we don't pray enough. It's one of the reasons we're having this class this, um, this Wednesday. I wanted, to say, I wanted to say it this way. Instead of a prayer-free life of guilt, have a, uh, a guilt-free life of prayer. I think that's, that's not a bad description of what we're looking for. But why? Why is it that we even struggle with this? Maybe it's because exactly what Cody says. We don't believe this stuff the way we should. We don't really believe in God. So, so what does it mean that we're not only dressed as Roman soldiers, but we're also dressed as priests? What does that mean? Well, that's easy. In the New Testament, in the gospel, we're all priests now. All of us. There's no mediator. We have a relationship with the Savior. We have a relationship with God. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are priests. 1 Peter chapter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We are a priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then finally in Isaiah chapter 59, God is described this way when he comes to redeem his people and avenge the world for all of this wickedness. You think Paul's references are original? Nah. Nah. Here's what Isaiah 59, 17 says. He, God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. See, see, our fight, our battle, our life of victory, it's not in our flesh, but it is in Christ. It is in Jesus. And the victory has already been won by Christ on the cross. And we live in it and battle daily through it by the power of his resurrection and by the filling of his Holy Spirit. Paul reminds us of this every single time in the New Testament, and he did it more than 150 times that he writes that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. We are in 
Christ. It's a reminder every time. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he hammers the point again. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Let's not only get into the game, but let's get into the right game. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you that you don't sugarcoat anything, and that you tell us the truth, and that you're willing to tell us even uncomfortable and awkward things. But you tell us because you love us and because you don't want us to be distracted and you don't want us to be defeated. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would, by the, by the power of your resurrected Son, the filling of your Holy Spirit, that we would engage this battle, but do so through humility and mercy, and that we would seek justice, but we would seek justice for everyone, and that we would start with humility and mercy, and that we would do it clearly by the power that you have given us. It needs to be done in your power. It's in your mighty power that we do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.